0: All right, so let's open our Bibles now. Let's get into our Bible study for this morning. And those of you who are on the text list, you know that our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're looking at verses 24 through 42. 1 Samuel chapter 20 verses 24 through 42, our studies in the life of David. Our topic this morning is this. God uses the little lad gathering Jonathan's arrows as a sign to direct David to flee from Saul And so the title of our message is, this little lad of mine, I'm going to make him a sign. (laughs) Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. In this particular passage in 1 Samuel, we want to really dig into it. And though we talk about studying your word, Lord, and indeed that's what we're doing, uh, we understand by that that your word is alive and powerful and that you are going to be speaking to us By your spirit, through your word, that there is going to be communication going on from your heart to our heart. And of course, Lord, when that happens, we're going to realize the grace of God in abundance, the mercy of God everlasting, your love, Lord, that is uh, boundless. We're going to see Jesus a little bit more clearly than we've seen him before. Our burdens are going to be lifted. Our cares are going to be cast on you. We're going to have a greater hope, Lord, than when we first came in here, mostly in your soon coming for us, your imminent coming for us. In every way, we're going to be uh, moving along the line of transformation that you have for us from glory to glory as we see Jesus, as we exalt him and bring him glory. And Lord, this morning to you be the glory. Amen. In English literature classes, I remember discussions about how to find the main character in a story. It's not always easy. For example, who's the main character in the original Star Wars trilogy? Is it Luke Skywalker? Is it Princess Leia with her weird hair? Is it Han Solo? How about Darth Vader? He's pretty prominent. Or possibly one of the annoying robots, R2-D2 or C3PO. Well, there are several prominent characters in the last half of 1 Samuel chapter 20. Saul and Jonathan and David play major roles, of course. Abner gets a mention. Easily overlooked is the nameless little lad that accompanies Jonathan into the field to retrieve his arrows. The little lad is referred to at least 12 times In this chapter, 11 times in these closing verses, he is therefore a major character in this story. And for our purposes this morning, he is the main character because he is going to teach us something or actually illustrate something for us that we read in the New Testament. Jesus once instructed us about the kingdom of God. And when he did, he said in Mark chapter 10, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jonathan's arrow fetching little lad becomes for David and for us the example of receiving the kingdom of God as a little child. Only by being a childlike subject in the kingdom of God would David be a great king over men. Likewise, our success on the earth will be measured by our childlike reception of God's rule over our lives. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you are like a child in the kingdom of God when you submit to God's delegated authority. And number two, you are like a child in the kingdom of God when you submit to God's direct authority. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 24 through 34. You are like a child in the kingdom of God when you submit to God's delegated authority. David had fled Naoth to enlist Jonathan's help against the madness of King Saul. Jonathan was holding out hope he could smooth things over with the king, who happened to also be his dad, and bring David back to the table. Jonathan and David had concocted a plan by which Jonathan would secretly let David know if Saul was at peace with him or still intent on on murdering him. David would either return to his place in Saul's kingdom or he would become a fugitive on the run. Of interest to our theme this morning in these opening verses about being like a child in the kingdom of God is the spiritual submission of Jonathan to Saul. He submitted to him as best he could as both his father and his king. When we understand what a terrible father and king Saul was, we can appreciate Jonathan's submission to him all the more. It instructs us because even though Saul was terrible, he was nonetheless God's delegated authority as father and king to Jonathan. We're going to see in Jonathan our own need to submit as much as is biblically possible to delegated authority even when it is terrible. And not just our need to submit, but we'll see the grace that is provided for us to enable us to do it because we can't really do it on our own. And so we pick up the story now in verse 24. Then David hid in the field, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. The plan was for Jonathan to sound out Saul once he realized David was absent from this important feast. The king's reaction to David's absence would reveal his attitude toward David, whether he would be merciful to him or whether he was intent on murdering him. And so verse 25, now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Abner was Saul's commander in chief. David, as an important military leader and national figure, also had a seat at the table and he was expected to attend this feast. I can't help but chuckle at the reference to Saul sitting by the wall. It reminds me of my Sicilian ancestors who always sit with their back against a wall because they're paranoid that they're about ready to suffer from a mob hit. And really, that's exactly what the text is bringing out. Saul was paranoid. He had his commander-in-chief next to him. He was sitting against the wall so no attack could come from behind him. It's interesting because Saul's the only one who was trying to kill anybody. He was trying to kill David, but he assumed that David would be trying to kill him because that's what the carnal mind does. It assumes things that are carnal. David is going to have a couple of opportunities in subsequent chapters to kill Saul. He sneaks up on him a couple of different times. And then he feels bad that he did it because he recognizes what we're talking about this morning. Even though Saul was trying to murder him, he knew that Saul was still God's delegated authority, God's delegated king, and he was leaving it up to God to deal with that situation. So it's very interesting, these comments. Now, verse 26, nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, oh, something's happened to him. He's unclean. Surely he is unclean. Now, by unclean doesn't mean he just didn't take a shower. It meant he was ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. Perhaps he had come into contact with blood or a dead body, which would render you unclean under the law. You'd have to perform certain rites and rituals uh, in order to become clean or free to participate in a feast. It's funny how a guy so backslidden like Saul still thought about the subtleties of God's law, that he had any mind for the law at all, because in his heart he was breaking all the law. It just shows us that a person can be legalistic and still have the hardest heart on the planet. In fact, legalism and a hard heart go together. Let's be gracious. And so verse 27, and it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was still empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go. For our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. And I feel obligated to again point out that this was a lie. David had pressured his good friend to participate in this ruse on his behalf. The Bible doesn't gloss over the faults of its characters. It simply reports them for us. And one reaction we have is to marvel at the grace of God in his dealings with us. Jonathan is a great, almost a pure character in the word of God. uh, But nevertheless, he has this moment where under pressure from David, he participates in this ruse. Uh, And um, we see how that's going to turn out right now in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. This happened publicly at a feast with many notable guests. We know Saul failed miserably as a king. Now we get a little insight into the kind of husband and father he was. Saul slandered Jonathan's mom, his own wife, with a very gross insult. He was trying to say that Jonathan must have taken after his mother, that he must have gotten his rebellious spirit from her. By the way, this is not a good technique in arguments, especially about your children. Just say, well, she's just like you or he's just like you is the thing. Uh, uh, My children have all of my wife's good qualities and uh, all of my bad qualities, uh, which are men. Well, just a few. So it's not a big problem. But anyway. uh, Yeah. So he's saying, you know, you're like your mother, a rebellious person. How interesting Again, the only person in rebellion was who? Saul. He was rebelling against God. He did something I call projection. He projected his sin onto someone who wasn't sinning at all. This might help you. Now, first of all, we do want to allow the Lord to search our own hearts. We believe what Jeremiah reminds us of, that the heart, the human heart, is desperately wicked and, and you know, evil But that God can help us search our hearts. And so we want to search our hearts and make sure that when people talk to us and and maybe they're rebuking us or correcting us, we want to be able to receive that. But apart from that, sometimes you're just accused. and, And sometimes you're falsely accused. And where does it come from? It comes from a person projecting onto you what is actually in their own heart. They're not allowing God to reveal to them what's in their own heart. And so they project it onto you. You know, someone once said, I don't know who it was, I should probably check, but you know, you've heard it said that in every criticism there's a grain of truth. Uh, that's not true, by the way. Sometimes criticism is just wicked. Sometimes it's just evil. Sure, I mean, you're a sinner, and if you, you know, are criticized, maybe you're not a perfect person, but that doesn't mean that what you're being accused of is, is true. And sometimes, if it comes out of left field, if it comes out of nowhere, it's the other person projecting onto you the terrible things that are in their heart. So tuck that away. Let it comfort you if and when you're ever falsely accused. Now, this reference to Jonathan's mother's nakedness probably refers to her giving birth to Jonathan, the king's heir. Saul was insinuating that by siding with David, Jonathan was despising his birthright and therefore bringing shame upon his mother. In that culture, uh, more so, I mean, it's true of every culture, but especially in the patriarchal tribal culture of Israel, For a mother to give birth to the firstborn son who was in line to inherit and to be the next king, this would be a tremendous honor for the mom. For Jonathan to prefer David and give up that birthright would be bringing shame upon his mother. What's interesting again in Saul's twisted mind, one minute he's insulting his wife, saying she's a perverse, rebellious woman. The next minute he's worried about her honor and how Jonathan might be insulting her. It's Saul's a weird guy. Verse 32. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be killed? What has he done? And Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. He just told him that, but now he really knew. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. Worried, though, he seemed about Jonathan becoming the next king, he was willing, nevertheless, to kill him in a fit of rage. Once again, we see that Saul was perhaps the worst spear thrower of all time. I get the impression here because it says Saul cast the spear. And then in verse 34, it says here, Jonathan arose from the table. I don't think Jonathan even moved Jonathan reasoned, I mean, you could see Saul, you know, at the table, and they couldn't have been that far apart, I mean, because they usually they sit in a certain pecking order at these things. And so as he's talking and defending David, he's gotta see his dad reaching for his spear. And he's thinking, I'm just gonna sit here. If I move and duck, he might get lucky and hit me. (laughs) But he can't hit the broad side of a barn, he hasn't hit a target for years. And so he just sits there, and who knows where that spear went. It's interesting how he always, Saul, this is, he always missed the mark. So did his life. Saul was in sin, and some of you know that from the New Testament, the word for sin is haimartia, which is a word that means to miss the mark. It's a word that is used of an archer who would shoot an arrow and miss his target. And it teaches us that we all are sinners and we miss the mark of God's perfection. We can never hit that mark. And that's what sin is. And that's why we need a substitute and a savior. But so, you know, I wonder if Saul would only just if he would have had devotions maybe in the morning and just quieted his heart and and just I think probably maybe the Holy Spirit might have whispered to him and said, Saul, do you realize that you're always missing the mark with your spear? And that becomes maybe an analogy to him. That you're missing the mark with your life. We think it's obvious that he's missing the mark. But, you know, sometimes the things that are the most obvious to others are not so obvious to you until you're hit over the head with them. I think God speaks through analogies all the time. I know I'm pretty dense and don't always see them. I see them in other people's lives. A lot of times in a counseling situation or just talking to somebody, they'll tell me something. I'll say, wow, that's the greatest story I've ever heard. Do you see how God is doing that? That's an illustration. It's really precious when God speaks in that prophetic way. And so, uh, you know, not in everything. I was cracking an egg and the yolk broke. What does that mean? Oh, I cracked an egg and I had a double yolk. God's going to bless me double today. Not everything has a meaning, but a lot of times things do. Some certainly some unusual things. And I'm just suggesting that we think more about that. Yes, God speaks to us through his word, by his spirit. But he's also still speaking in creation and in situations. And we want to judge all of that by the word. But but look at what God is doing in the world uh, and giving you illustrations. Now, there's a sweet insight into Jonathan's character here. The text says he was grieved. But not for himself. He was grieved for David because his father had treated David shamefully. Maybe this is the main lesson. The major realization regarding submitting to God's delegated authority as childlike subjects in his kingdom. Life is not about me. It's about God. So if I'm Jonathan, I am grieved, but not for myself. I'm grieved for David because he was God's choice to be king. Jonathan, therefore, truly did seek first the kingdom of God. I would have been personally insulted if my dad, the king, had done this to me. In fact, I would have said, I'm done being your son and I'm not part of this kingdom anymore. Forget you. I'm going to go do something else. But Jonathan was wounded for David's sake because he had God's big picture in mind. With that kind of heart, it's no wonder he continued to submit to Saul as both his father and king. He didn't go along with anything that was illegal or immoral or unbiblical. But within those boundaries, he remained a loyal son and a loyal subject as unto the Lord. He looked past Saul to the one who had delegated earthly authority to Saul. To the extent Jonathan will take his stand with his father, with his king, and be killed along with his dad and brothers in a fierce battle with the Philistines. Let's face it, it's always easy to submit to someone in authority if they are kind, and if we agree with them, and if they are a good leader. It only becomes an issue when they are more like Saul. We are not to submit to anything illegal or immoral or unbiblical, but within those boundaries... We receive the kingdom of God as children when we submit to those God has for his own reason permitted to have authority over us. And sometimes that rule and that authority is in the category of terrible. And so we need to fight to keep under that authority within those boundaries, because by submitting to that, we are submitting to him and are receiving the kingdom like little children who trust and obey. Now, the. Last half of the chapter, or rather the last portion of the chapter, verses 35 through 42. You are like a child in the kingdom of God when you submit to God's direct authority. In these closing verses, we'll keep encountering Jonathan's little lad. As David waited to see where the arrows would land, he knew that their flight would decide his own plight. It's a great meditation on the will of God. If you are obedient and submitted, you are waiting upon him to set your direction You're going to follow, as it were, some arrow of his leading. In your case, it probably won't be an arrow shot in the field. It'll be something else. But it's it's something out of your control that leads you according to the path God has for you. God wanted to show David something more, though, about his will and his leading, something very precious. He wanted to show David he could have the attitude of a little child while following the arrows of his leading. Though from an earthly perspective, his life was about to get very tough from a heavenly perspective. His father was simply taking him out into a field. He was going to shag arrows as part of their fellowship and David's continued training. And so verse thirty five. So it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad was with him. And then he said to his lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste, hurry, don't delay. So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. So the little lad, it was a morning of shagging arrows in fellowship with Israel's great archer. It was a time of learning about the bow. To David, this was the signal he was going to be a fugitive in the kingdom of Israel. It was about learning how to bow to the rule of God in his life. God was showing David that his direction, represented by the arrow, could nevertheless be received in a childlike manner. I can almost hear the Holy Spirit whispering to David, that's you, you're like that little lad, you're my child, and the path that you are on will require a childlike trust in me as your father when some arrow of god's authority directs you onto a path not of your own choosing or desiring your attitude can nonetheless be like that of a little child verse 39 but the lad did not know anything only jonathan and david knew of the matter this little lad had no idea he was involved shaping events that would direct the flow of human history Likewise, we never know who or what we might be influencing as we go through our lives. I know it seems like our lives are insignificant as unto the Lord sometimes, but we just don't know how God is going to use our influence when we are called upon to submit to some authority over us directed by God to do so. We need to trust that it's for a reason or reasons that have eternal consequences to everyone involved. You don't need to know outcomes as a child in God's kingdom, only obedience in my heart. I say to God, show me the outcome and I will obey. God answers, obey, and I will show you the outcome. Verse 40, then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, go carry them to the city. I'm guessing that because of the seriousness of that situation, Jonathan didn't shoot as many arrows as he normally would in a morning practice session. The little lad's morning was cut short. Nevertheless, he dutifully obeyed Jonathan. You never know what is going to happen when you are out in the field with the Lord directing you. We always assume that things will go well, that we will experience great blessing, that we will somehow further the kingdom of God, especially numerically. God has a way of changing things up on us. Just when we get started, he's liable to say, we're done. Let's move on. Philip was down in Samaria leading a great revival in the book of Acts. God came and he said, okay, you're done here. I have need of you on the desert road. I want you to just go hang out on the desert road. Philip didn't know why. He just went. We know why, because the Ethiopian eunuch was passing by on that road and Philip led him to faith in Jesus Christ and then that eunuch went and affected an entire country if not continent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that was God's outcome. Philip didn't know. Hey, I want to stay where there's revival. We've been praying for revival in Hanford for 25 years and I'm sure people have been praying longer than that. Imagine if revival broke out and then God said, okay, Gene, you're done here. You've labored all these years and now revival is broken out, go somewhere else. I say, I don't think, I'm, uh, hello? <laughs> Not hearing you. Or, more likely, we'd like to be done somewhere, and God says, oh no, oh no, I have much for you to do here in this field, difficult though it may be. How many of these Old Testament guys had really tough ministries. Jeremiah always comes to mind. Jeremiah begged God. He said, please, I'm too young. Don't send me. I don't want to do this. And then we see a little bit of his ministry. No conversions thrown into pits. No one believed him. Uh, It wasn't very successful from an earthly standpoint. So a lot of times... You, you, you that's where you get into, well, maybe I didn't hear from God. Uh, you know, on the uh, one side of it, you think, oh, I'm here. Uh, I'm not hearing God. No, I, I'm not hearing you, God. On the other hand, you say, maybe I didn't hear from God and I'm not supposed to be here. Uh, it, it's a very interesting. And what we're learning is that we just need to have that childlike trust in the Lord. And if he's spoken to us, then we just hang out with him. Verse forty one. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times. They kissed one another. They wept together, David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. These two friends, I think they're only going to see each other one more time in this life. Each went God's way for them, submitting to God's direct authority in their lives. David followed God's direction to become a fugitive for the next several years, a guy who's going to live mostly in caves hiding from King Saul. Jonathan followed God's direction to remain a loyal son and subject to his mad father and king, even though it will bring from an earthly perspective a premature death. Now, I'm sure they would rather have gone off together with their families and established the business that they had been planning, making figurines that could be sold in the local Hallmark stores. Doesn't anybody collect Jonathan David figurines anymore? Come on, you do. You're just embarrassed to admit it. But that's not what a believer does who understands the concept of being like a child in the kingdom of God. And so what is this kingdom of God? Well, there is a literal physical kingdom of God coming to the earth. It's going to follow on the heels of the seven-year Great Tribulation, which is yet future. When it comes, it's going to last for a thousand years, and it's thus sometimes called the millennium for the Latin millianum, thousand years. While we are waiting for Jesus to return in his second coming to establish the literal kingdom, the kingdom is God's rule that is recognized in our hearts and operating in our lives, affecting our behavior. It is our submitting to him, to his rule, as our king. Jesus said that the kingdom must be received as a little child. Children don't work to earn their way into the family. They are born into the family. And just so, you and I cannot by works enter into the kingdom of God. We must be born into it. We must be born again by receiving Jesus Christ as the substitute and sacrifice For our sins for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life when Nicodemus said to Jesus how can a man be born again that was the answer by believing on Jesus Christ as the Savior as the substitute as the sacrifice and the Holy Spirit causing us to be born again and so the question this morning for all of us it's a good question have I been born again. You'd be surprised how many people have gone to church their whole life, even a church that teaches the Word of God, and have never really confronted the issue of whether or not they're saved. Have I ever been born again? Have I just been going to church? Was there a time in my life when I gave my heart to Jesus, when I prayed to receive Jesus Christ, when I realized I was a sinner? If there hasn't been a time like that in your life, uh, and you, you know... Or maybe I should ask this, what are you trusting in to save you? If it's someone or something other than Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith alone, then you still need to be saved. You may still be dead in your sins and trespasses. And so solve that this morning. Have I been born again? Now, once a child of God, by virtue of this second birth, this spiritual birth, you're to continue to approach life like a little child in terms of trusting and obeying Your heavenly father. It seems like it's easier to have childlike trust in God when you're first saved. If you get saved as a, you know, later in life. I mean, for me, as I can only speak for myself, you get saved and it's like, oh, I have financial problems. (laughs) That's nothing for God. Here you go, God. Here's my checkbook. Deal with that. You've got a drinking problem. You got a drug problem. You got this problem or that. Hey, God, here the Bible says to cast my cares upon you. Man, I'm, I'm hurling them on you. Forget casting. Here they come. Bam, bam, bam. And you, you just, you know, and, and God does this amazing work in your life. Then you walk with the Lord. You read the scripture. And, and as you mature, you get into situations where that deliverance doesn't seem to, I mean, it's like, hey, this, there's kind of a wait time here. What are you doing, God? And I think what God would say to us in some of those situations is. It was easy in the sense when you were, uh, you know, just born, I did all those things for you because that was where you were at. But now you're you are really a little bit more mature. I still want you to be childlike, but I have to take you through some things to show you the same things that I could have showed you uh, years ago. It's going to take more patience, more time, because I want to go deeper. I want you to grow stronger. Uh, I could do this right now. I could give you a million dollars. I could take your illness away. I could bring that person back from the dead. Well, Lord, why don't you do it? It's because we're we're in a little bit of a deeper walk here right now. I want to teach you some things before you see me. And you want that too. You just don't know it. And then I still, with childlike trust and faith, need to obey the Lord. How do you measure this childlikeness? There's lots of different ways, I'm sure, but one of the, two of the ways are what we've looked at this morning in our illustration. By seeing how well you're submitting, first of all, to God's delegated authority in your life. Who are those authority figures in your life? Parents, government, bosses, church, whatever it might be. And how well are you submitting? Not to anything unbiblical, not to anything immoral, not to anything illegal. Don't misunderstand something illegal is going on in your home, call the police. Something, if you're being asked to do something immoral, don't do it. Something unbiblical, avoid it. But within those general boundaries, how, are, how am I submitting? How are you submitting to the delegated authority over you? It can't be any worse than King Saul. It can't be any worse than Saul over Jonathan, as both his king and... And his father and Jonathan said, I won't submit to any of these things. But when it comes to the end, when it comes to the battle, when you're the king of Israel, God's put you there. I'll stand with you. I'll go down with you. I'll be killed because that's God's will for my life. Wow, that's heavy. And then secondly, how are we doing with God's direct authority in our life? Are we asking God to show us the outcome so that we can obey him? Or are we just going to obey him and trust him for the outcome?